0: Well, I thought I'd start from this point, where there just was a question or a question based on an awareness that uh, somewhere around some folks here, during the sitting, there was a little sound like a beep, beep, beep that went off from time to time. And uh, people had a sense, uh, the people who shared about it had a sense that it was annoying, it was a little distracting, and it's hard to keep it just at the level of beep, 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 you know, you start to think, what is it? Is it uh, someone's um, wristwatch timer going off? And uh, someone said, well, maybe it's a pacemaker going off. And uh, it, The attempt of the mind to turn it into something good so we won't be annoyed with it. Like, well, it's a mindfulness bell. You see, just every 15 seconds are you awake. But, uh, and uh, the way... It, First of all, the way in which the mind has a natural habit of identifying, which is good. I mean, when we're born, I'm pretty sure that infants hear beep, 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 click, 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 flash, flash, thump, thump. That's probably what the experience of warm, cold, uncomfortable, comfortable. They don't differ. uh, they, They differentiate sounds. Sounds happen, but they don't do the conceptual putting together naming and linking and remembering about it and then making an opinion based on it. And that really, it was what I was going to talk about, a form of what I was going to talk about, so we'll start from there. Because... More volume. Sorry, Tim. Uh, If, for instance, we make the... uh, Is it better? We make the decision, it's a pacemaker, then... uh, we don't mind it. I mean, God forbid that person's pacemaker should stop beeping, you know. So we start to think right away uh, when it doesn't do. uh Uh-oh, what happened to that person? Should I look around His pacemaker? Or it's lucky we have pacemakers. Amazing, they made such a wonderful (laughs) thing. It could be an exalting thing. And the people were so brilliant as to... uh, Anybody here has a pacemaker, by the way? So that rules out... (laughs) and besides my knowledge of my friends who have pacemakers is they don't beep they don't beep but the thought this might be a life saving device we're so happy about it if we have the thought that somebody's watch and they have for whatever reason either purposely or not purposely uh not turned off their watch, then we could start a little annoying story about them. Like what What kind of a person would come to a class like this and not turn off their watch, and it's very unresponsible and self-centered, and here I am sitting quietly, and if it were not for that watch, I would be sitting here with perfect clarity of mind. But. Uh, but of course they don't know that at all. You know. As a matter of fact, it's quite likely to have much more alertness and clarity of mind with the watch <laughs> than without it. You know, Without it we might be asleep, but the watch is keeping the mind awake and you have to make all these discriminations. If I like it, I don't like it, it's good, it's not good, what am I going to do? I came early this morning because I wanted to move some things into my room because there's a retreat that starts for a month this Friday and I thought instead of moving in, it's a big move in for a month, so instead of moving in altogether on Friday I thought, well, I'll come a little early and start to move my stuff in this morning. So I did that and I uh, rolled my stuff down to the Meta building and uh, I met some folks who are friends of mine who had been sleeping over there last night. And uh, I was just getting ready to put my stuff in the room that I hoped assumed was mine, because it's the one I always use. I like it for various reasons. And I said, I'm moving into this room. I think it's mine. So they said, uh, there's a list of who's going to be in what room. Uh, It's on the manager's desk. So I said, well, then I'll go and check before I move all the way in. I said, I'll be back in a minute. And you will either see an expression of happiness and contentment or a wonderful demonstration of the practice of equanimity, one way or the other. (laughs) But I didn't say equanimity. I said the practice of, because that was what I hoped I would have. Things either go the way we want or they don't go the way we want. Based on that we have a certain view, if I'll be in that room, It'll be really comfortable because it's on the back side and not on the front side, or the this end and not on the that end. But I have no idea whether I'll be comfortable really. Maybe I catch the flu on Friday and then I'm uncomfortable for the first three weeks. Or what if I sprain my ankle while walking over the threshold of that room? You know, we make a whole a story based on a particular view that this needs to be that way in order for the future to unfold in the way that will make me happy. And the truth is, we haven't got a clue. (laughs) Or that I am this way because of what happened in the past. Because of that particular thing. We make views. I really wanted to talk about it some more because last week we talked about uh, practicing the paramita of renunciation. How do you practice renunciation? And at the end, I had a sense that uh, we had things yet to say about it. I had things to say, and there were a lot of questions. So some folks weren't here last week. I want to tell you, in the briefest overview, I told two stories. One I read from a new book called The Dalai Lama, My Son. Um, it was a wonderfully sweet book. I got it in this bookstore. You could get it, too. Um, uh, the Dalai Lama's mother no longer living, was interviewed, uh, and the writer, who I think is the Dalai Lama's brother or his uncle, put this little book together, and it's the story of her life and how it is to grow up as a young girl in Tibet, part of a big peasant family, and get picked, get married, and um, ultimately to have people search you out and say, uh, this... Particular son that you have is the fourteenth um, reincarnation of the Dalai Lama, and so now we'll move to uh, the royal palace and we'll begin to train him and what the story goes from there. But the story of her, the the part I particularly read what had to do with uh, uh, her marriage to a man that was selected for her who lived nine hours by horseback from her family, his particular family lived nine hours away. She married him, and as was the custom, she went to live with him, nine hours from where her family lived. And she described at some length how many people were here. So I know how much detail. Probably need more detail. She described at some length how physically arduous her life was that... Uh, to get up at one o'clock in the morning and start to light the stove to make the, the morning tea for the servants, and then uh, take care of her family, and then work in the fields in between coming back to cook the lunch and the, taking that out to the fields and the evening meal. And it's written in quite contemporary vernacular, so it says things like "my mother, ne- my mother-in-law neft- never lifted a finger to do a bit of work," and uh, but it's not in a bitter tone of voice. It's just like a piece of news. You know, my mother-in-law never lifted a finger to do a bit of work, and she had a very violent temper, and she burst out at me and um, uh, uh, scolded me all the time and scolded everybody else. And, uh, of course, I just had to take it because that's what you just did. And then at some point she said, and my husband, uh, he also never did a bit of work and went and uh, spent his time doing this or that. And I guess their f- farm, which was considerable, carried that whole enterprise. So my fa- my husband also had a very hot temper and uh, sometimes violent, very hot-headed. She said, but, um, you know, that was what was happening. And uh, she said, uh, in all those years of... Um, struggle that was so difficult for me where I suffered so much. Um, I never mentioned it to my husband that I was suffering. So it really wouldn't have helped. And I thought, hmm. Then I thought, well, she's the Dalai Lama's mother. So she probably has extraordinary, um, (laughs) extraordinarily well-cultivated paramitas because that the extraordinary vehicle to give birth to the next uh, Dalai Lama. So then I told the story as well about a woman I met on an airplane who isn't the Dalai Lama's mother, who's 70 something years old, who raised seven children, who was born in Denmark, who met her husband because he was of Danish origin, but born in this country, went back to study in Denmark, met her there. 1948 or 9, brought her back to this country to be his wife. And they raised seven children together, all of whom are now grown and having their own family. And her husband died just a few years ago. And I know a whole lot of the rest of her story as well because we talked all the way from New York to San Francisco, sitting next to each other in the plane. And a cheerful, lovely woman, very pleasant to spend time with. And at one point, when we talked about that she'd come in 1947, 48, 50 years ago, um, you couldn't go back and forth to Denmark just that easily. I mean, now sitting down on a plane and going to Europe is commonplace. Going to New York is nothing at all. So I said, uh, you didn't get to visit your family very much then in Denmark. She said, no, hardly ever. And I was thinking well it probably would have been wonderful if she'd had a wonderful family to that she'd married into and I said uh, did you like your mother-in-law very much and she said no not really she said uh, she said really she was a very difficult woman she was angry all the time and embittered and uh, fault finding never liked me very much when Talked about how she said, but you know, I never let on to my children that um, I didn't like their grandmother because, after all, she was their grandmother and it wouldn't have been good to let on about that. Could have tainted their relationship with her. And um, I said, Did you ever tell your husband? She said, No. She said, It wouldn't have made him happy. And I thought to myself, I really felt. I <laughs> <laughs> tremendous admiration, and then went on to say that in in fact, you know, who knows degree of difficulty, but my mother in law, may she be at ease on whatever realm she is, was also not an easy woman to be with, um, and uh, we knew each other, and where we th- were in relationship for. 30 years before she died. And uh, she loved me a lot when she died. And I really loved her. She was a difficult woman, but I really loved her. But there were a lot of years that she was very difficult, and I didn't feel so good about her. And I talked to my husband a lot about it. I did. And I don't know whether I should feel good or bad about (laughs) it. So I went home, and I said to you, that was where I left. So that's where we came up to date. Now everybody is tuned in. You know, when you watch a TV soap opera. You can miss for six months and in the first five minutes you catch up to where you are. That's where we were last week and I left with the question, think about, everybody was surprised. Are you surprised at that story? Never mentioned it to the husband? Yeah. Imagine, how many people here have been in a partnered relationship one time or another? Okay. All right, so we have a fair representation of people who know how it is to be in partnership. Here's the question. Holding it in seems, on first blush, very noble. When I heard about that from the Dalai Lama's mother, I thought, you know, very noble. One of the things that the Buddha taught is that everything that you say should be truthful and helpful. So, if you're living in Tibet, in a culture where that's the cultural context, where that's what people do, where it's unlikely that you will be perceived as anything but odd if you don't, would it be helpful? That's the way you have to live. It's not like you can say, okay, I'm going to change my graduate fellowship to Cincinnati so we don't have to live so near my family. I mean, it's not that easy to, it's not helpful. But then you, I would think to myself, and perhaps you are also, maybe it's helpful to get it off your chest a little bit. And sometimes it's helpful. It's definitely helpful, in my experience, to tell people that I care about, this is the pain of my heart, and sense that they get it. That, you know, sometimes we say it and it's become a little banal. People say, I hear what you're saying. Think yeah yeah yeah, but really, <laughs> 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 you know, it's kind of new age talk. I hear what you're saying. I don't know the right thing to say. You can tell me because I also don't feel good when people say I know exactly how you feel because I think to myself, how do they know exactly how I feel? They are guessing that they know exactly how I feel, but they're not having my life. You can't know exactly how I feel. Um, maybe the the ultimate politically correct response would be, I have a sense that I know something like what you might be feeling, (laughs) because I have had similar experiences myself, and I've been in terrible pain about them. How are you? That would be maybe an open. I thought also that we value our, in, uh, our close relationships by degree of intimacy, you know, that of shared vulnerability. That I was thinking about the friendships that I have that are dear to me, that I perceive as growing in dearness, that there's, it's not all unshared secrets. Part of it is shared interest, shared delight. You know, there are some people who are just on your wavelength who like your stuff. Um, but I notice that in those relationships that I have that are the ones that I feel sustain me particularly in my life, they're ones that have developed over time as people sort of play out their secret cards, you know, like you get a, a, a hand, you put your card on the table. Another person, this is a card you usually keep near your chest that you put on the table. And I said, oh, okay, I see that card. Now I'll put my card on the table. And people, by the way, put all their cards on the table after a while, or more and more cards on the table. And then you get to feel, well, it's so safe here to put the cards on the table. So when you have a card you have to put somewhere, you phone up that person or you say, I need to talk to you or something. You figure they can hold your cards, they won't tell other people, they won't judge you for your cards. I was thinking about the other day how important it is not to feel judged. We had a teacher meeting with Board on Sunday. There's two things to say about this. I certainly hope I get back to where I wanted to be, but this is so important (laughs) to say. This is really on this point, really. Two things. One is that we have an ethos at Spirit Rock. We don't have teacher meetings that all often, maybe four times a year, five, where we all put aside a day and come together and spend the day together. So everybody makes an effort. And everybody else feels like everybody else should make an effort. So when we get together and someone isn't here, we say, where is so-and-so?
1: <laughs>
0: and you know, usually so-and-so needs to be somewhere, but we, we really hope everybody will be there. Because we do plan a whole year or talk about important things. And on Sunday, I realized that uh, there was one person who stayed a little while, and then was really tired, been teaching and working very hard up to the, really up to that very moment. And that person said, you know, I'm going to need to go home. I'm just really tired. And I could feel everybody wanted it to be another way. But actually, this person having said their truth, and because we all hold that person with a lot of love, the heart makes space. So the view you have, I had. Everybody should be here against all odds melts away. It was a view. It's just a view. It'd be nice if everybody were here. But it it's not a view that stays fixed. Would have stayed fixed, we could have all had a bad feeling on that person that day and forever, as a matter of fact, as the person who doesn't provident enough to take care of themselves to come in a fresh way. You know, they can make a story that reinforces a view. Really, what I thought how I thought we might best continue that discussion of renunciation, still keeping the answer for the end, because I don't know the answer. Uh, but keeping it alive as a question is to talk about um, what other ways do we get stuck in views or freed from views? And how are their views that, what are the views we could identify in our life that we don't even see as views? I watch it in myself these days. Here we are, not so long past the election. I have views about, uh, uh, I have views about what would have been a good outcome and a not good outcome to that election. The, um, I have views based on my views of what candidate A or B would do if they were president. It's extremely difficult to hear the news that certain governmental decisions are being made. How am I going to do this? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know, but am I? <laughs> Trust you, trust us. Well, well, trust each other. You
0: tell me if it's not true for you that when, because not everybody voted the same way, but we have all had this experience. The candidate that you did not vote for becomes elected. How many people have had that experience in your life? Okay. When that happens and you didn't vote for that candidate because you were concerned that they would do X or Y, and then they then, in fact, proceed to do X or Y, which then validates your previous opinion that, aha, if they got elected, they would do X or Y. What happens to you? What do you feel? What do you think? I was right. So Lynn says, oh, I was right. So you get a certain amount of indignation. You get angry. Indignation is a very, like, um, well-mannered form of anger, you know? <laughs> especially righteous indignation when you're sure you're right. <laughs> what else? Fear. Fear. Sadness. Huh? Sadness. <coughs>
1: sadness.
0: Sadness. You know, fear and anger and sadness, in my experience, are one ball of stuff, and, uh, I used, to th- I used to think about it for a while, this is such an odd simile, but do you know about Play-Doh? Mm-hmm. Um, that Play-Doh, uh, come, it's a children's modeling substance, and it comes in different colors, and uh, primary colors, usually. And if you work with it a long time, the blue and the yellow will become green after a while, but you really have to work with it. For a while, if you roll them together in a ball, they'll remain uh, intact, the colors. So if you push your finger through, you'll get blue out of the ball. If you push your finger through, you'll get yellow. You, they, for a while, they retain their own coloration. By and by, if you did it enough, you'd get, and you had red and yellow and green. blue, I guess you'd get brown finally or something like that. But for a while, they have all of their same coloration comes through seems to me that when I am angry, I'm always frightened a little bit that, uh uh-oh, something is happening not the way I wanted it to happen. And that I'm mostly always sad as well because I'm frightened that this is happening because I didn't want it to happen, and if it happens, I'll be sad if it happens. So I've been trying to have a practice of... um, restraining myself because the anger doesn't feel good and so I have one practice called turning off the radio when I don't want to deal with it anymore but on the other hand I feel a little bit like I need to sometime check in on what's happening and if I don't check on the radio anyway I'll get any number of emails that will tell me what I should be signing and which
1: I'm
0: happy to have and sign but uh, How to... I I tell myself, this is just like the practice of equanimity that I was thinking about this morning. If the room is not assigned to me, I need to be equanimous around this. doesn't mean I have to forget that I'm disappointed about it. I wanted that room, and I think it will be a better room for this, that, and the other reason. How can I practice equanimity around this? Somebody told me... uh, it's such a great line I said how are you they said I'm in a great shape these days I'm so good I can listen to the news which by which I understood that they didn't like the news particularly but that they were in such an expansive place that they were able to say you don't know, you know maybe it won't be what I thought but I think it will be what I thought but maybe it won't be what I thought, you know, and they said, "Well, that's what you're thinking," but you know, maybe it won't be. I don't know. I don't know what's the answer for this. I'm just putting out everything that I could think about this, because I'm trying to work through renouncing opinions. Um, I have views. You know, the the uh, the first line of one of the faith verses of the third Zen patriarch is. The great way is not difficult for those who have no
1: preferences.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you all know, I I say, whenever I remember to say that line, I always have to follow with my personal commentary, which is when I first heard that line, I thought, forget about it, about this practice. Because (laughs) I have all kinds of preferences. Then I decided that it meant, uh, I think it probably means, for those who have no preferences. You know, when Arjun Jemnian comes here in the summer, he does the same wonderful line every year. He says, you know, if a lot of people come in the morning, when on the morning that I'm gonna teach, he said, it's great because I love to teach Dharma. I feel so good and I teach Dharma. So if nobody comes, I that's great, because then I get to sit. He said, and you know, if they bring a wonderful lunch to offer, because you know, he's a monk, and his, his noontime meal, which has to be eaten before noon, which he has to eat before noon, because he's not gonna get to eat till the next morning. He said, you know, if a lot of people come and they bring wonderful food and they offer a lot, he said, that's great, because I really love to eat. He said, if no one comes. That's okay, because I'm a little overweight, you know? And I could wait until tomorrow morning. And I thought to myself, every time I meet him, I love him because he represents a piece of me that I have not yet really discovered. Um, that I think must be extraordinary. Is that really equanimity? Is that our tranquility? Is that patience? Which one of the paramitas is it? Should we not in advance hope? Oh boy, it's Wednesday now. A lot of people could come today with a great lunch. Should that hope not arise in the mind? And if they don't come, that's okay. Should we not bother to hope? Should we not want? We all want. Uh, I was thinking about the nature of um, prayer life however it shows up you know in in uh, this particular tradition here we uh the closest thing we say to a prayer is uh, metta practice may i be free of danger may I be safe may i have mental happiness may i be happy may my mind be at ease may i have physical happiness some people say may i be healthy um May I be healthy is okay. May I be healthy, really. What I like to say also is uh, may I have physic may, may my body be peaceful because that allows also for the fact that uh, from time to time I could, I do get sick. Uh, and as time goes by, I probably will not be so physically vital as now. So what I really would like to have is a body that's all right with whatever it can be and whenever it can be. And may I live with ease. And then when you do metta practice in a formal way, you carry that on so that you make those uh, prayers, really. We call them resolves a lot, may it be so. Uh, m- may you be peaceful in your body. May you be safe for other people. So that's a prayer. So it means we hope it'll happen. That hoping arises in the human heart. And uh, then we say things to give voice to that hope. Sometimes they're tremendous hope, like, you know, may, may the world all suddenly wake up tomorrow and have a peaceful heart on each other. Because we could change the whole world in one day, uh, and sometimes they're quite trivial hopes. May, you know, may it rain enough so that the crops grow. Well, that's not a trivial hope. Sometimes we think, well, may the rain stop before I get home or before I need to leave. You know, we we're always hoping that it'll be this way or that way. May the freeway not be crowded. It's not a hugely tense <laughs> demand, but. Uh, we don't forget, you know, if, if someone were to ask you five minutes before you leave your house, do you, you know, would you rather have a crowded freeway or not? We'd probably say, may it not be crowded. And then if it is, you make the best. But the, the heart, the mind, really, I think, tends in the direction of hoping. Don't you think so? I think it's because we respond with pleased and unpleased pleasant and unpleasant all the time. I think it's the nature of the human organism. So I have to say, should we renounce hoping or should we renounce struggle around the hopes? There's. It seems clear to me that uh, I would be more comfortable if I were not quite so sure that my opinions around my hopes, my opinion that I form, I hope such and such gets, so-and-so gets elected, because I hope so-and-so gets elected is a truth, because if they don't, it'll be this, that, and the other way. Well, I don't know, I just think so. Um. Maybe if I were not so positive about the opinion that I have, about the hope that I have, I would not suffer as much. You know It's hard to give up a view. My friend David Zeller said everybody who's a teacher, and I think everybody who's a person uh, would be well served every day as a 10-minute meditation practice to repeat this particular magic mantra to themselves. The magic mantra is, "I could be wrong." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't
1: know,
0: it's a very complicated, it's a complicated practice. So I just wanted to put out a few more views that I have, and then maybe you could tell me some of your views. Views that I think are part of cultural conditioning so that we don't see them as views. We see them as facts. Um, You can see it in another culture easier than in yourself. Uh, Cultures that are more comfortable with the idea of... uh, uh, successive births, the, the soul or the essence of a person being reborn into successive births um, will say things. Well, I must have been of this or that in my last life or I must have done such and such in a last life because i I have such fortunate karma in this life. Probably I did something in a last life to merit it that's particularly related to this. We've begun to say that, you know, sort of, I don't know whether it's crept into the culture, but um, anybody ever says that here? How many people would say that here? Did you say it when you were a child? No, it crept in from listening to all this dharma talk, I think, (laughs) beginning to have sort of a, and maybe it's true, you know. But we don't say it. We don't say it uh, spontaneously. We say things like, uh, uh, "Oh, uh, I've said things like, um, I probably was as a mother overly alarmed when my children was sick, even with the most trivial illnesses." Because my mother's health was very frail, and she died as a young woman, and I was very frightened about health issues, And uh, but they might be two non-sequiturs. Might be I was particularly worried about health issues in my children more than know, more than if you did a survey of a million mothers and said how upset do you get about a cold or something. They're just, it's hard to know. I felt particularly worried. It's very easy to say, well, that was probably because my mother this and that. But it might also be because I have a somewhat high-strung nervous system. I know other people who are very fretful over their children's illnesses, Whose mothers are ninety three years old and in the best of health? you know I, it's not necessarily a sequence. I uh, this is a, here, I had a view about this book, so I brought it just to tell you that I got over the view. Someone gave it to me as a gift. the The book is called "If the Buddha Dated,"
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's called a Handbook for Finding Love on the Spiritual Path." Actually, I think it's out now, a book room as well. And when I saw it in the book room, this is a tremendous confession, I must say. When I saw it in the book room, I thought, why is that here? You know, that, uh, that uh, there's something sacrilegious about that, you know. And uh, it's really funny. to find myself all of a sudden responding like the defender of the faith. But... Uh, um, that it would surely be a trivial book because and surely it's mocking of the Buddha. And in fact, I just started to read it. And, and what it is, is uh, Charlotte Castle, best-selling author, spiritual practitioner, and therapist, uh, has written a practical, playful, spiritually sound book about, drawing from Christian, Buddhist, Sufi, and other spiritual traditions showing how to find a partner without losing yourself. Uh, Charlotte Castle, a practicing psychotherapist, workshop leader, Reiki Healer, for 20 years, offers practical wisdom on using the path to love as a means of awakening. If the Buddha dated teaches you that when you stay loyal to your spiritual journey, you will bring curiosity, fascination, and a light heart to the dating process. Sounds like a very helpful book turns out actually to be a very helpful book. I I haven't read the whole of the book. But imagine, she's taken the notion of really sincere spiritual practice. She's used the idiom of those three (laughs) traditional spiritual practices, and she teaches some good psychology. Listen to this one paragraph. Talking about um, leaving home. I wrote a little piece for a textbook yesterday that's going to be published on Buddhism, talking about the Buddha using the term um, "going forth into homelessness," which he encouraged the spiritual path for uh, in in his time. Going forth into homelessness, the renunciate path, was in fact considered the noblest way in which to practice. And here is Chris. Here is um, Charlotte Castle on Leaving Home. To have an intimate lover, we need to quote-unquote leave home. The Christian wedding vow, forsake all others and cleave only unto him or her, suggests that our partner must become primary in our life. This doesn't mean we need to abandon parents. (laughs) It means we have to be differentiated from them. Here are two basic aspects of leaving home. First, we need to explore the values and attitudes we learned, sort them through, keep the ones that support our spiritual path, and release the ones that block our journey. Second, we need to explore all the conclusions we came to about ourselves as a result of our upbringing. This is the part I really like. People often say things like, I'm afraid of being intimate because my mother was so cold. This leaves out a crucial step. In reality, we're not afraid to be intimate because our mother was cold. We're afraid to be intimate because we interpreted her behavior to mean we were unlovable and then concluded that intimacy was dangerous. We need to challenge the chains of assumptions and conclusions we came to so that they stop driving our behavior. Otherwise, we're constantly misinterpreting our beloved. Our partner says, I won't be able to spend time with you tonight, and we respond... You just don't think I'm important. Essentially, we've fallen into a childlike trance and see the other person as the parent who repeatedly ignored us. I I love to tell a story about, uh, this is told to, told to me by a friend of mine who <coughs> lives back east. She, she said that she and her partner were at a um, psychology retreat, uh, four days I think, Um, I can't remember whether it was Charlotte Castle or who it was. She said, but on the second night of the retreat, it was not a silent retreat. She and her partner were sitting at the table with the retreat leader. And the retreat leader said to her partner at one point, she said, "Uh, uh, Judith, I I noticed that uh, you never eat any cooked vegetables. Why is it that you don't eat cooked vegetables? She said... "Uh, I don't eat cooked vegetables because when I was a child, my mother obliged me to eat cooked vegetables. The person who told me the story said, retreat leader thought about it for a while. And then she said, that was a long time ago.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: now, the, the, the thing that's crucial about that, I think, because I, I read it again in Charlotte Castle, is the long time ago, I don't know, but the the tr- the traumas of my life that happened a long time ago stay in there like 5 minutes ago for the most part so that part i mean that's a long time ago is a great thing to say by the way cuz it really wakes you up to think about it but i'm not just because i'm not thinking that just because it's a long time ago that should go away but the chain of associations that throw you into the trance maybe you could think about because so I think about, you think about just that thing. I don't eat cooked vegetables because my mother obliged me to. But it's got the clue in there. Why did the mother oblige you to? Probably got born, not like looking, liking cooked vegetables. If you had liked cooked vegetables from when you were born, you would have eaten them. And then your mother wouldn't have obliged you to. Probably the right answer is, I don't like cooked vegetables. I never did. And the mother is a late comer onto the scene. If you loved them, it wouldn't have come up, you know. But probably the truth is, you didn't like them for whatever reason. Everybody gets born with taste buds that like or don't like. Here comes the mother intervening on the scene, obliges you to eat, and then the... um, a loathsome response to the cooked vegetables gets put onto the mother's obliging, not onto the cooked vegetables. And then you have to be on the lookout the whole life for who's pushing you around and obliging. And then there are all kinds of people who don't like to take orders. Don't tell me what to do, you know. So that anything, you know, past assault becomes an intervention <laughs> that you don't want to hear. So Anybody knows about that? Anybody here has it? You're all laughing because we all do, you know. Uh, And it's such an enormous thing because then it becomes a truth. If you tell enough people something, then it becomes a truth and you never give it up unless you question it. Uh, Probably if I said, ready, set, go, turn to the person next to you and tell that person, why you are the like the kind of person that you're like right now. We would all know, you know, for whatever it is, I am fretful because my mother was sick or I am timid because in my family nobody got to be allowed to speak out or I am this because of that. Maybe, but maybe because I was born in Leo or <laughs> maybe because I'm lactose intolerant. Maybe... Who knows why? Maybe it's in my genetic code because my great grandmother had it. I don't know really why, but we we make a we look for a cause, we solidify a view around it, and then we get trapped in that view. Because we then have to set up a life that doesn't set up that particular constellation of things. I didn't read this book, which has been out in the in the book room for a while, because. I had a view. I looked at the title and I thought, ah, that can't be worth anything. Look how that title is fooling around with sacrilegious title. It's actually a good book. Um, I think that when we have views, the problem with me, the problem for me for having a view is that if what I really want to do, and this comes back to the beginning of the instructions for when we sit today, sat today. I said, really this practice of mindfulness is having the mind as open as it can be to really see in the fullest and deepest way the whole of what we have to see. Then every time I have a view, it inhibits my seeing. I thought about, I had this odd image come into my mind. When I was a child uh, in New York, uh, in the south end of Brooklyn, There used to be vendors that came by the back streets with uh, fruits and vegetables in wagons. They were fruit and vegetable sellers. Also bread bread trucks and milk trucks because families didn't all have cars. And if they had cars, they had one car. And so the person at home who was usually the woman of the house couldn't go away all day. So he couldn't go shop that easily. But a bread truck came by and a milk truck came by and the vegetable and the fruit people came by with with trucks that were drawn by drawn by horses. So this is nineteen forties in Brooklyn. And the horses had blinders on them that stuck out that way. So the horse could not see one way or the other. And I thought about that. How would it be I used to look at the horses and think, how would it be? To not be able to see past just the front out like that. And I thought about that later when I thought, how would it be if I didn't have all these views? If I could see, well, that's an odd title, but maybe there's something good inside. I'll look. I'm, my concern about renouncing views is that maybe radio too soon or I don't not look in the book or I don't decide on the basis of a previous meeting with somebody who I don't want to talk to now because surely they won't have anything valuable to say. I might have one more thing to say and then I'll let you say something. (laughs) Just thinking about the ways in which um, we have psychological views that um, we take as givens. but would have never, in, in the time of the Buddha, they had a different psychology. They didn't say it was because my mother didn't pay attention to me that I feel this or that. They would say, I have too much of the factor of, um, I'm a greed type, or I'm an aversive type, or I'm a... Uh, Torporous type, it just or a sanguine type or a melancholy type. Just had different ways of understanding the psyche, um, or I'm a Leo or I'm a Taurus, and that we have we have now overlinked them all. How many people here think they are like their sun sign? Yeah. But you didn't know about your sun sign when you were growing up, did you? That wasn't a thing that we talked about. At some place, we read about it. and said, oh, yeah, that's what I am. And then when you read the horoscope, it just sounds like the right advice for you. I don't know where that crept in. Just like the past life notions. I Think about Dharma and what we take to be true. Um, How much of... uh, some of the wonderful stories that we hear about uh, uh, even the Buddha, that the Buddha was born uh, looking in a birth that his mother didn't feel at all. And uh, so already that, you know, but but you know, I've, I've told that story a lot of times. Like it, because, you know, because who knows, it could have happened, On the other hand, there's a lovely story about meaning to say this was an extraordinary person. And he took seven steps and declared his last lifetime and that the Buddhahood and that everyone knew from the beginning, therefore, that he was going to be the Buddha. And you say that enough times that it becomes like a true story. And then every once in a while you think, It's likely that that didn't happen in exactly that way. How much really did happen that we know about? Or Bodhidharma brought, I've said this one, I don't know how many times. Bodhidharma brought uh, uh, the Buddha's teachings, brought Buddhism to Japan. And you know that it took um, uh, hundreds of years for the ideas of the Buddha to uh, pass through all of Asia. I mean, he stayed in India all of his life. And the, the uh, dharma that he taught very much, I think, influenced the uh, Indian Brahmin culture that was there. I think the Indian religion changed very much post the time of the Buddha with the influence of uh, dharma didn't become other than what it was. It didn't become Buddhism, but it became a different kind of Hinduism. And uh, as uh, monks went out and spread those teachings all throughout Asia, changed the religious uh, form in Tibet and uh, all through Southeast Asia and uh, all through China and uh, Korea. And uh, eventually uh, emerged, and in all those places it turned up as in a different, it modified or it changed or it got enfolded in the religious practice of each of those places so that Tibetan Buddhism looks a great deal different from Chinese Buddhism, Chan Buddhism, which looks different from Korean Buddhism. They all share a certain basic premise. They all share the premise that clinging is the cause of suffering, that the end of clinging is possible, that peace is possible and uh, in this very life, that there's a path of practice that leads to freedom and liberation and uh, ease of heart. So they all share a certain basic understanding that the purpose of practice is on behalf of all beings. That's a shared purpose. But it looks different in each of those countries. And uh, in each country, uh, the ideas of the Buddha didn't emerge on an empty blackboard. They emerged in cultures that already had religious forms. In China, that emerged and um, influenced the Taoist, Confucianist culture that was there. And in Japan, it emerged in a period of time which, among other things, historically, was a period of samurai culture and Zen has a kind of heroic uh, feeling about it in practice, So I always think must be an influence of that heroic cultural texture. But it just occurred to me the other day that when we say something like Bodhidharma brought the teachings of the Buddha to Japan get a feeling like on one day Bodhidharma got in a boat, went over to Japan and said, ta-da, I'm here, you know? And it was centuries of merchants going back and forth, sending these ideas back and forth and scholars talking about it. It's not like bringing one thing and saying, look what I've got, look what we'll do with it. But it's a lovely story to say Bodhidharma brought the teachings of the Buddha to Japan. How many times did I say that? That's an odd thing. That's almost as odd as saying that the Buddha got born, walked seven steps, and talked. But you just do a thing like that for a lot of times. And I thought, well, I really have to start to think about what's a story, what's an opinion, what's a view, what's really the truth, and really, uh, probably as... as, uh, I hope, as I at least mature in understanding, I'll be able to see the difference between them. Just based on the sense that every time I have a construction that's a story, it maybe gets in the way of my having the fullest vision of what's true. There are fundamental ways to say dharma. I just wanted to end with a little bit of another book that I read this week, which I think is marvelous. I don't know if we have it in our bookstore. But if we don't, uh, I really hope you'll get it. This is a book called Being Black. It's written by Angel Kyodo Williams, who uh, is a young writer, lives in New York, uh, a Zen practitioner in New York. This is Dharma. Spoken through the voice of an American. What the hell do they say about her? They always say something. She's an ordained Zen priest, the founder of the Urban Priest Project, the publisher of edharma.com, a popular Buddhism online magazine, and creator of Dharma Planet Online, Uh, DharmaPlanet.com, an online spirituality community. Um, A founding board member of Third Wave and a current advisor, she's also co-founded Cocoa Bar, the first black-owned internet cafe. Her projects have been widely covered in such publications as New York Times, Ms., and Village Voice. So just as the teachings of the Buddha emerged in Tibet and sounded one way and then in China and another way, in Japan sounded another way, and Korea sounded another way, this is how they come through um, Angel Kyodo Williams. The subtitle of this is Zen and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace. Sounds good. She begins, she says, there's no doubt in my mind that Buddhism is a religion. However, Buddhist philosophy in its purest form is just a set of principles to help you become awake to the life you have so that you can live it more completely. It's a way of planning your life, setting up your social structures and actively engaging your time on this planet by waking up and getting a fundamental grasp on what's really important. With a little bit of awareness of who we are and our shared humanity with others, we can begin to relax a little. It doesn't mean we drop our battles and say racism and violence don't exist anymore or lose our passion to push for the rights and space that we should have as human beings. Maybe, though, we can begin to approach those efforts more as the work that is here for us to do, like washing those dishes in our house after someone else ate off them, rather than as a struggle, which makes us feel constrained as soon as we hear it. While the people of Tibet appreciate the effort of the monks towards attaining spiritual enlightenment in this lifetime, their day-to-day reality is they want prosperity and peace in their life, not such a bad set of desires, given that we each have the same set. We all want basically the same things. The study of spirit, spirituality, is concerned with the essence of what gives life meaning, what makes it worth living. You have to find a way to collect your fractured pieces of your life, examine them, and then accept them as part of who you are. Then, instead of saying the Four Noble Truths, she's got a chapter called The Four Simple Truths. Here's the first simple truth. There are mundane everyday dis- discomfort. That's the truth of dukkha, right? This, par- this apartment is too hot, outside is too cold, the train is too crowded, my parents make me crazy, my kids are too grown, my lover is cheating, I hate my job, I hate my boss, I hate doing dishes, and will somebody please turn that hip-hop off? <laughs> <laughs> If that isn't enough, our lives are punctuated by crises that cause us pain. Second, and then talk about that these crises are more than the, just the everyday. There are crises. Desires cause discomfort. We, feel we, we never feel that we have enough. We always want more of this or an extra that. If I had that coat, I would be so happy. If I could just get this job and meet the right person, everything would change and my life would be better. We can't really con- because we can't really control all of the elements that go into making up a life, and because we are human, we are self-centered, it's so heartbreaking to realize that things do not necessarily go our way, and we are not the center of the universe. Nature goes about its business despite our plans, and it continues to reign. The idea of me and mine separate from everything else is what creates a sense of craving. Third noble truth, third simple truth. It is basic to all beings to want to achieve happiness. Fourth, meditation in the Eightfold Path can end discomfort. Talking about the Buddha now. In the end, he simply sat down and paid attention to the way in which his mind works. If we didn't spend so much time reacting to things, we would spend less time feeling bothered. That's the whole of it, isn't it? If we didn't spend so much time reacting to things, we would spend less time feeling bothered. Then it goes on to the three wonderful treasures. Three wonderful treasures. You know what? The, what are the three wonderful treasures? Buddha Dhamma Sangha. She has portrayed them as uh, really the 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 uh, wisdom of ancestors and the wisdom of community and the sense of community, taking refuge, teachers who came before us. She talks about teachers in the Zen tradition, but she talks about all the teachers in the African-American tradition, teachers in your family, teachers that are your kin. Teachings. what everyone has taught us. People in the world community, people in the Buddha community, and people in our own ethnic communities, our own community for those for whom we were responsible. Anyway, that's the book, and I just wanted to tell you about it because uh, there's got three serious poisons. Tell me, what are the three serious poisons? Greed, anger, and delusion. Greed, anger, and delusion. She says, anger is the poison that most of us can most readily admit to having a close and often recurring relationship with. You may say to yourself, yes, if there's going to be a poison that ruins my soup, anger would be it. She talks about cooking a soup and what are you going to put in it? Says, These are the things that ruin your soup. They're poison. So I just want to recommend this to you. Uh, again not to have the view that you might have as well that's not me it is me it's all me so I want to ask you a question you tell me now I want to leave this as the last question let's go back again to the original place where I started about uh, those stories about the Dalai Lama's mother and the woman on the airplane who didn't complain. And most people, I think, he felt they would have complained. I read an article by um, um, Norm Fisher this week. It's going to be published, I think, in Tricycle in a little while. It's about holy complaining.
1: Uh,
0: it's a holy complaining. Really <laughs> complaining with a. He was saying that, you know, our heart needs to be, the voices of our heart need to be heard. It was his point of view. And uh, that, uh, the, the, that he could see a difference between complaining that fatigued the mind and the community or complaining that brought about change. What would happen if we didn't... So I want to put that out, and then I want to put out Because I hope you will say something about what has been your experience when you have held in a complaint or complaining, or when you have shared them with somebody. You have a view about whether it takes or gives from intimacy. What's your view? Joe?
1: I think that this Loud, loud. I think that the, the culture that we're talking about and the time frame that. Well, didn't say. There was not the open communication that we have now. And my experience has been when I have said something that's bothering me, it's a catharsis for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that the women who didn't complain, probably they didn't have an interchange with anybody about, they weren't able to, they weren't on that, for whatever reasons they were taught that that mm-hmm. wasn't acceptable. And I think that there's a price to be paid for that, for, from my view. Yeah. But.
0: So what? So Linda.
1: If I'm complaining at the level of my personal small self, that's usually not so useful. Yeah. But if the complaint comes
0: because I have a sense of what's deeper and truer and something got off track or something got
1: blocked and that's not being allowed to live fully, then that feels like a useful complaint to notice and pay attention that something's wrong off center here.